And Church of the Palms was nice enough to uh, invite me to learn about parish ministry with them. And so uh, they've been really nice to me. They've given me a lot of tasks to do, uh, a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of uh, coffee getting for everybody at uh, all of our meetings. Just kidding. But that's me, and I'm a fighter, and so I have fought to stay here and contend with that man over there, Steve. Just kidding. Bad joke. It's a really bad joke. But uh, Lori Haas wanted this picture to be shown to everybody, um, and I think it's pretty funny. But nothing of love for uh, Church of the Palms. I, I've uh, really been uh, glad to be here, and it's been a great learning, uh, learning uh, process for me. The scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gracious God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. Lord, sometimes it's difficult to do that, and sometimes we don't want to, but we have to remember that today is not ours, it is yours, it is your day. And so may the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you in your sight, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. In downtown Los Angeles, there's about a, less than a half mile radius of where 2,000 to 11,000 homeless individuals sleep every night. Uh, this area is just a few blocks away from uh, the infamous Staples Center where the LA Lakers play basketball. Uh, some of you may know the name of this place. It's called Skid Row. And uh, when you walk down Skid Row, the street, you smell cigarettes and alcohol. What you see is you see tents on the sidewalks and you see men, women, and children living inside those tents, and you see trash flooded through the streets. 
what you hear is you hear the, the uh, police cars and their sirens and it get louder and louder. And what you feel is the hot Los Angeles sun beating down on your body. Why does a place like Skid Row exist? I asked myself that because I visited Skid Row with my church uh, one summer going into my junior year of high school. It was devastating. I was freaking out. I was ashamed to admit it, but I was in complete fear. I didn't know how to handle all of this. Nervously, I reached back into my pocket to make sure that my wallet was still there. My head was on a swivel looking left and right because I was in fear of the danger that might come my way. Not only this, but I kept muttering to myself, I've got to get out of here. I don't belong. I've got to leave. I'm not safe. I was fixed on that thought. I'm not safe. As a 17-year-old high school student who lived in a, a wealthy suburban neighborhood, gated community, I thought I had my life neatly tied together, and I thought I had Christianity all fit in its box. But this, this experience, it shocked me. I was, I was completely undone by what happened. And it's funny, Skid Row was just the first part. It was just the, the beginning to this whole, um, this just confusion that I had. And uh, after the trip, many memories started flooding into my mind of when I recoiled from the pain of this world. And I asked, I asked myself, how many times have I walked down the street avoiding eye contact with the homeless? How many times have I been driving down the road and seen someone who needs help on the side and said, someone else will help them? How many times have I, been, have I decided not to do something generous or loving for someone because I felt it would interrupt my day or it would make me unsafe? I imagine this is all too familiar for us. We're like Moses. When, when God called Moses and he made all these excuses and excuses, we too, we recoil again and again and again with excuse after excuse until God's voice becomes silent. But I'm the first to admit it, I'm a busy guy. I don't know about you all, but I'm pretty busy. I've got things to do. I can't be just going and helping everybody and uh, spending all my time with that. I've got plenty of things to do, and we all do. Our days are not filled with meaninglessness. We're not just watching TV all day. We've got, things, we've got tasks at hand, and we have good intentions for them. We have an obligation to our family, to our friends, and to our jobs to keep on those tasks, right? But as most of us here would agree, there's a world out there that is hurting. There's a world out there that needs love. Have we abandoned it? Nicholas Wolterstorff, an American philosopher, he paused on the sudden death of his son. He writes, when we have overcome absence with phone calls, winglessness with airplanes, summer heat with air conditioning, when we have overcome all of these and much more, then where, then there will be abide two things with which we must cope, the evil in our hearts and death. After every great age of humanity, you would think that we would be able to at least contain evil and death. But there's no vaccine, 
no amount of money, no theological or biblical truth that we can do, uh, use to extract these two from this world. For some reason, it's just the world that we inherited. And so hopelessness seems so right. It seems like the right thing to do to just despair. And we turn on our TVs and what do we hear? Terrorism, hate, war. It's more frequent than love and kindness. We hear about poverty and how it's growing and we hear about the color of our skin and how it continues to divide us. It seems there is no end to evil and death. This duo of chaos always has the upper hand. Shall we throw in the towel? Not yet. For in the teachings of Jesus, we hear of a future where violence and death, they will be no more. We believe that this future does not come on our own accord, but that it is coming and it's at hand. And mysteriously, here is where we lie. All our inventions, our scientific breakthroughs, our efforts, they have fallen short. But the kingdom of God is coming. We live between these two orders of sin and death and the kingdom of God. And you know, Paul was no stranger to this uh, duo of destruction. It was in the shadow of the Roman Empire that Paul challenged Caesar. It was in the midst of shipwreck, danger, starvation, thirst, and ceaseless torture that Paul continued to preach this good news. Paul was deserted by the Jewish leaders and scrutinized by friends. He, he rejected power, success, and worldly pleasures. When no blessing came for him, he courageously proclaimed this inseparable love. And we ask, why, why didn't Paul just let it go? Why couldn't he just settle down and have a nice, calm life? Why didn't he recoil from the pain and suffering of this world? Perhaps ringing in his ears were the saying of Jesus, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Or perhaps Paul was meditating upon the stories of Jesus, the stories we know of the Jesus who abides, who remains with the impure, the lawbreakers, the poor, the maimed, and the too far gone in, in society. Perhaps Paul remembered that Jesus reclined at the table with these more often than with the religious elite. Perhaps Paul knew the Messiah to be the one who, though being in the likeness of God, did not consider that something to be grasped. And so, Paul tells us, Jesus emptied himself. He exhausted his time in the service of others. He faced the evils of this world and death head on and controlled his need to recoil from the, the hurt. Jesus came down to us, sharing the burdens of our sin and death. Friends, love abides. Do you hear the good news? Love remains. It does not abandon the other. Love overcomes this need to recoil from the hardship that we face. Love gets tangled up in the brokenness of others. And not many portray this, this idea better than the great theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. He says, Then whatever the world may take away from you, though it be the most cherished thing, then whatever may happen to you in life, 
however you may come to suffer in your strivings for the good that you will, if people turn indifferently away from you or against you as enemies, if everyone disowns you or is ashamed to admit what he owed to you, if even your best friend were to deny you, yet if in any of your strivings, in any of your actions, in any of your words, you truly have had love as your confidant, take comfort because love abides. Things in this life, they come and go, right? They're fleeting. But remember with me our great example, Jesus Christ who went before us, abandoned and betrayed, rejected and alone, defiled and pierced. Jesus raised himself on the cross one more time and uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this, cry, in this cry, God goes where God cannot go. Love has transcended the grave in the death of Christ, and yet death could not overtake this Christ. There is new life. This is the good news that Paul cries. No amount of destruction, no amount of death can separate us from such a love, for there is nowhere we can go that God has not been. But the witness of Christ invites us to walk in this dangerous road of discipleship. It's not a death march. Death is not our goal. But this walk is done with the rhythms of love. This walk is done in the outpouring of our love to this world. Chuck and Molly, they were in their 50s. And they, had, they had a happy life together. Molly attended Uptown Baptist Church, and uh, not only that, she was a, a great woman. She was a social worker, and uh, she worked as a counselor in the Chicago public school system. Uh, Chuck, on the other hand, was a, uh, had a, held a seat on the Chicago Board of Trade, and he was known as one of the savvy and most successful businessmen in the city. Chuck was completely and entirely uninterested in going to church. And he never attended with Molly. He decided to golf 36 holes on Sunday mornings instead. So every day before Molly got up in the morning, uh, or every day before uh, she went to work at the public school, Molly would wake up early and go make the trek down to the Uptown Baptist Church where she would prepare meals at the shelter. Once Chuck confused uh, by this, this reoccurring uh, task of Molly's, he asked her, why do you go down there? Why do you spend your time with all of these people at the church? Molly's reply, because that's where I see Jesus. This, of course, made no sense to Chuck. Chuck had the life he wanted. He did everything that he, he wanted to do, and so many family members had desired that type of life for Chuck for so long. But when Molly was mentally and physically debilitated in an automobile accident, Chuck's life, it changed. Chuck struggled to make sense of this unfinished life of Molly's, and Chuck had no idea how to honor this life except to take her to church. But here's where the story gets really remarkable. Chuck began to realize how this weekly trek to church, it began to change his own life. He said that getting Molly up in the morning and ready was such a touchy and lengthy ordeal 
that he literally had to orient his entire week around this one event, this one Sunday. Sleep schedules, eating schedules, hospice schedules, and Chuck's own work schedule all had to change just to get Molly to church. Chuck puts it this way. The irony is, having never gone to church with Molly a single day before the accident, I am now always on my way to church. Everything I do throughout the week is now about going to church with her. What does it mean? What does it mean to always be on our way to church? Would it, would it not mean embracing those who are hurting? Would it not mean loving the unloved? What about mourning with those who just lost a son? How about crying with someone who just got divorced? Perhaps it means tweaking your schedule just a little bit to drive a friend to a chemotherapy session. We can either, there are two things that we can do. There, we can either remain in solidarity with those who are in pain, or we could turn the other way. We can recoil from the hardships of this life and forget their hurt. We must remember among the crushed and burdened in, in our society, there Christ is. Not many know about Friar Christian and the seven Trappist monks who lived amongst the destitute in Algeria. The movie of Gods and Men portrays the true story of these seven monks. Some of their daily tasks were cultivating food, providing medical aid, and passing out clothing for this small community. But in the mid-1990s, there plunged this horrible, gruesome civil war, and great amounts of terrorism started to threat, threaten the livelihood of these monks and their community. As the ter terrorism came knocking on their door, the two, two monks in the group uh, began to wrestle with what it meant to follow Christ and also for their concern for safety. Dying here, one monk said, does it serve a purpose? I feel like I'm going mad. It's like, it's true, the other monk said, that staying here is as mad as becoming a monk. Remember, you already gave your life. You gave it by following Christ when you decided to leave everything, your life, your family, your country, the family you could have raised. I don't know if it's true anymore, the first monk responded. I pray and I hear nothing. Why be martyrs? For God to be heroes? We are martyrs out of love, the other monk replied, out of fidelity. Our mission here is to be brothers to all. Remember that love is eternal hope. Love endures everything. Now, many of us, I assume, are not destined to become monks in another land, in a distant land. But we can all still hear that call, right? We can all hear that call to be brothers and sisters to all. What would that look like for us? What does that look like for us here in Sarasota? In a world that trains us with every single day to recoil and to pull back and to not deal with others and their hurt, how 
How can we be light? How should we be light? Let us remember God hears the cry of the hurting. And Jesus invites us down this road as people who can hear and see the brokenness in this world. But not only this, Jesus takes it a step further. He invites us as his people to dwell in the burdens of others, to sit there with them. As we do this, we proclaim the love of God with our bodies. And perhaps one day we will let go of this need to recoil and find ourselves reworking our schedules for people like Molly. One day, perhaps, we will find ourselves in everything we do always on our way to church. Let's pray. Father of the Son and the Spirit, it is to you that we give this day and every day. Uh, this world is, is not ours, and uh, it is all yours, Lord. We ask that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear uh, the pains of this world and give us the courage and the strength to sit and dwell with others as you have done for us. In your name we pray, amen.